We're going to pick up uh, John chapter 6 today. John chapter 6. Gospel according to John. I'm going to be reading the the first 15 verses, I think, of this. It says, After this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias, And a huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. So Jesus went up a mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now, the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. Therefore, when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming toward him, he asked Philip, Where will we buy bread so these people can eat? He asked this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Then Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, so they sat down. The men numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also with the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were full, he told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this really is the prophet who was to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus knew that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for who you are, for what you have done, especially as my brother Dennis always says, thank you for the cross. But God, I not only thank you for the cross, I thank you for an empty tomb. Because God, many a man has died. But only one can truly say that he had the power to lay down his life and to take it back up again because he had paid the price for our sins. He died so that we could be set free from the relationship to sin that we had. But you rose in new life so that we too could live and that we could have a new life in you. So Father, we give you all the praise and all the glory. I ask that you open our hearts and our minds to receive your word today for it is only your word that accomplishes anything. God, it's not us and how smooth anyone can talk or how nice things look, any of those things, but it is only through your Holy Spirit making the Word alive in our hearts that we're changed. And so, Father, I give you all the praise and all the glory. I just believe and pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And church together said, Amen. I did recently uh, speak on this passage when our our worship team uh, was able to go and, and spend some time with the Salvation Army here in Anniston and at that time, I addressed the idea of little is much when God is in it. But I'll tell you, if, uh, if, if people get hung up about thinking that you can only take one passage and preach one thing out of it, you just need to get some Jesus. Um, you know, I say, if a minister is struggling to take a passage and get something out, then, you know, you need to let the Holy Spirit get a hold of leading you into, into what's there. We're not going to talk today about the idea of little is much when God is in it. <clears throat> if you want to see that, um, I think it ended up on Facebook. Um, maybe it got attached somehow to my um, to my uh, Facebook account when uh, John Cook actually took and, and videoed that. 
and then you can you can hear that uh, pass uh, that that message out of this particular passage. So, but today I want to approach this from a different perspective, and today I want to talk about believing without seeing because there's a lot of folks that use the phrase "seeing is believing." That is not true when it comes to Christianity. It is not about seeing is believing. It is about believing without seeing. So we want to get a mental picture of what's going on here. And the reality is we've got people who are following Jesus because of the signs that he had done. And that's very clearly what it said. Now, we identified last week that God had caused these signs to be done in order to point out Jesus for who he was. And I'll remind you of that scripture here that tells us that. It's Acts chapter 2, verse 22, where he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. This Jesus the Nazarene was a man pointed out to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Now, very specifically in this passage we're looking at today in John chapter 6, it says the people were following Jesus, and to get very detailed, it says because of his healing of the sick. You know, when we're sick, when nothing has been working, we'll do almost anything in order to get well and get some relief. It's amazing how that people who will tell you they don't care for Christianity, they don't, they don't want to come to church, they don't care anything about prayer or anything like that, but let somebody in their family get deathly sick. Let somebody get to where there seems to be no hope, and all of a sudden people are calling on church folks, and they're calling pastors, and they're calling believers that they know they may have made fun of, they may have, have, have jeered at and poked at, and, but all of a sudden they're picking up a phone and they're calling people, and they're saying, hey, I need you to pray. Because when we don't have things going on, we have the luxury sometimes of being sarcastic and being agnostic and all kind of other stuff. And, but all of a sudden, when difficulty comes, we need help. And when it has reached a point where that man is saying, I don't know anything else that we can do, people will turn and they'll look for some higher power that can move on their behalf. And that's what was somewhat happening with these folks. They were seeing that, that Jesus was healing the sick, and so people started following. They followed him in mass because they saw hope. They saw a chance for their physical issues to be done away with. And one of the challenges for us during any period of our lives where we're stressed and frustrated is trying to keep our focus right once God does move in our situation. Luke chapter 17, we're not going to go there and show you, but I just want to give you a reminder about it. It's where Jesus actually heals 10 men that you most often has heard, have heard uh, from reading the King James Version that they were lepers. They had some type of skin disease, but, but maybe that was leprosy. So there's these 10 men who are outside town because if you uh, know anything about the biblical standards for leprosy and things like that, they were considered unclean. In fact, they had to take and they would, they would have to put their, their, their finger under their nose and stuff and anytime someone was coming up near them, they'd have to cry out, unclean, unclean, to let people know, don't get near me, you'll probably get this. You'll catch whatever I have. And so they had to be removed from their families, removed from their daily life, and they got moved outside of the city. So they couldn't even be part of society as a whole. And these men are, are ostracized. They're separated. They're cut off. They, they may have had children, wives, other, other family that was there. They can't, they can't go and be around these people. Their whole lives have been disrupted because of what's happened. Jesus comes on them. They ask him to have mercy on them. He tells them, Go, 
Present yourselves to the priest. I mean, he doesn't do a whole bunch of ordeal about you know, healing these folks. He just tells them, go present yourselves to the priest. The reason is, is because that many times some of these diseases could go away. They could run their course and be done with, or maybe there was some form of treatment they could do, and after a period of time, it would go away. And when that had happened, you had to go and present yourself to the priest who would basically examine you and say, yes, this person is clean, they're free of this disease, and they can come back into society. As these guys run off, one of them notices that he's healed. So he turns around and he comes back and he falls at the feet of Jesus to worship. But nine other ones don't. They keep going. And Jesus actually looks at the one and he kind of takes a moment and he says, Wait, weren't there ten of you guys? Where are the other nine? Only this one has come back to give thanks. Only this one has come back put his focus on the source of the miracle instead of simply the result of the miracle. And that is, for today, that's our big idea number one that I want you to get out of this, is keep your eyes focused on the source of miracles in your life rather than simply the results in your life. See, when God does something powerful in our lives, that's wonderful and that's great, and man, it's exciting, but don't forget the source. Don't become so enamored over the result that you forget the marvel of the source. That He's done this. Keep your eyes focused on the source of miracles in your life rather than simply the results in your life. Don't be one of the nine lepers who got healed, but you just keep on going because now I'm back to life as usual instead of going, wait a minute, I need to go back and recognize the source and worship Him for what has happened in my life. Jesus tests Philip. He's testing him when he asks him how they're going to feed all these people. In fact, it almost seems like that Jesus sets him up by how he asks the question because Jesus says, where will we buy bread so that all these people can eat? Now, Philip does exactly what most any of us would do. He gauges what they have in the pocketbook. Then he eyeballs the number of people he sees coming at them. And he comes up with the reality that all of their money won't even provide a little bit of bread for every person. Think about it. And us guys, we're some of the worst at this, right? We, we guys like to, you know, we like to plan, and, and this is a specific problem that us guys in particular face. Now, you ladies, y'all plan and stuff too. I'm telling you, guys just struggle with this. We want to we wanna control things. We want to plan stuff. We want to know exactly what's going to happen. And so, so this issue's coming up, and if this was us, we're standing there, and we're getting the wallet out and going, all right, what we got here? All right, got this much money? All right, look up and see. Man, that is a lot of people, and they're still coming. Jesus is going to have to take the wheel because look at all these folks that are coming. There is no way. We are not going to be able to provide food for all of these folks. It's not going to happen. Now, many folks, if you've been in church, some of you have ever heard that particular passage talked about. They've heard that this 200 denarii that Philip mentions, it was just pennies. It was just nothing. It was worth just a few dollars. That's just not true. All right. I'm sorry if I wanted to break that for you. That's just not accurate. That's not, that's not scripturally accurate. It's not today accurate. It's just not accurate. All right. The, uh, the, the denarii that's mentioned here and elsewhere in the Bible was the equivalent of a general labor's daily wages. Okay. So basically when Philip says, hey, 200 denarii is not going to buy enough for this. He had 200 days worth of 
one worker's wages. That's a fair amount of money, guys. In today's uh, today's perspective would be, or today's standards, this would be, if you called it around $75 a day, then we're talking about $15,000. Okay, that's not pennies, and that's not just a few dollars. But you go, oh my goodness, they had basically the equivalent of, say, $15,000. Now, if you go read some stuff, just so in case you get to digging into this, if you start trying to figure out how much the silver was worth, in the denarii itself, then yes, in today's standard, that's about $3.62 back in about 2011. That was what the silver was worth. But that's not, we're not trying to figure out what silver was worth. That was the equivalent of a, of a day, of a wa- the wages for a day for a general labor back then. So forget how much the silver was worth if you read any of that. This is about a day's labor and the wages that were for that. So they had about $15,000 if we were thinking about it today. So that sounds like a lot. But you got to consider that this passage indicates it was only the men that numbered 5,000. So ladies, wives, maybe multiple children, because these guys, you know, back then, they weren't hanging around with like one kid, right? There, there, there was kids after kids after kids and stuff. But so it's not hard at all to imagine that this could have been 15,000 people or more. So you had 5,000 men. You got, if you got one child and one spouse even, I know all 5,000 men probably didn't have, didn't have spouses, but we're not talking about these were 5,000 men that included every male. It was 5,000 men. They didn't include children. They didn't include 10-year-olds in being considered in the men. So you got 5,000 men. If you got a couple of kids and you got some spouses in there, you got 15,000 people in a hurry. And all of a sudden, you're trying to feed those folks in today's language with everybody getting fed with the equivalent of a dollar a piece or less. So now you understand Philip's problem. You know, hey, okay, I got less than a dollar maybe to try to feed each person. That's why he says that's barely going to give enough to just a little bit of bread. We wouldn't be able to get that for everybody. Philip straight up tells Jesus, this won't buy crumbs. That's in essence what he tells him. Now, one of the other disciples looks around and he sees, hey, there's this one boy and he has five barley loaves and he's got two fish. And those are the only food supplies that anybody sees. We're kind of out here in the countryside where, you know, everybody's out here in this big grassy area. We got enough money to barely spend a dollar, maybe less, on every person. So we can't, we're not going to get there doing that, guys. And then we look and say, well, what food do we have? Well, we got maybe 15,000 people here, and we got five little loaves of bread, and we got two little fish. This isn't going to get it either in, in just the physical. So, so let's get that, that in our heads for a moment on perspective. We don't have enough money to buy what was needed, and the supplies that we have are not enough to sufficiently feed everybody. So they're looking at each other. And they're shrugging their shoulders and they're saying, I, I, don't, I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know how we're going to handle this. Jesus is asking us, how are we going to buy food? You know, where are we going to buy food? Do you notice he didn't ask them so much how we're going to He just said, where are we going to buy food? Sometimes we don't get the fact that God's asking us one question and we're answering it from a different perspective. Jesus asked him, where are we going to buy? He didn't say, how are we going to buy? He didn't say, where are we going to come up with this or whatever else? He said, where are we going to buy this? Philip looks from his perspective and goes, we don't have enough money to buy. He's not thinking about where. He's, he's going, it's not possible. 
Jesus is over here going, where are we going to get it? Philip's going, I, I, we don't have enough money. Now, keep in mind that Jesus' disciples have seen him turn water into wine already. They've seen him heal a man with an incapacitating physical illness for many years, lying beside the pool. We saw that just a couple chapters back. They've apparently seen all the healing of the sick that led all these folks to start following Jesus. Because you got maybe 15,000 people that are hanging out here, and it says the reason they were doing it, because they were seeing all the signs and wonders he was doing, how that he was healing the sick. So they've seen water turn into wine. They've seen a guy that was laying beside the pool for a long, long time that couldn't get into the water to get healed. They saw Jesus speak to him, and he gets up, takes his bed, and walks. They've seen all these other folks getting healed of sickness, and they're trying to figure out how we're going to feed some people. Right? I mean, let's just be honest. Not a one of them is looking to Jesus to ask, what can you do about this challenge, Jesus? Because we've seen you take ordinary water, turn it into the best wine these folks have ever had. We've seen you tell a guy who is lying there that we know has been there, can't get into the pool, and you've told him just stand up, take your bed, and walk. We've seen you heal other people that are sick, and that's why all 15,000 or so of these people are out here. We don't know where we're going to get this, but we figure you do. You could turn this grass into bread if you could turn water into wine. You could turn these rocks into... I mean, the devil had more belief in some of that, honestly, because later when he's going to tempt Jesus, he said, hey, you could just turn these rocks, these stones into bread. His own disciples weren't looking around going, there's some rocks, turn them into loaves of bread. The devil knew what Jesus could do and hated it. We love what Jesus can do and don't believe it. Well, yeah, go ahead and absorb that one in. Big idea number two. Take stock of the natural things that are available in your life. For it may be that God has already provided your answer. But always look to God for how He may choose to supernaturally use the natural in ways you haven't imagined. Jesus had already known there's a little boy. Because remember he said, Jesus asked Philip this to test him because he already knew what he was going to do. Nobody told him there was a little boy there that had five loaves and two fishes. Jesus just knew. He already knew. Jesus knew there was this little source of something, but he knew what he was going to do to that in order to meet the needs. So we look at the natural sometimes and we go, well, I mean, I have something, but, but God really can't solve that through this. That's because you're looking at the natural and thinking about how it can be used in the natural, but God is over here operating in the supernatural. God's over here looking and saying, I can take what you think is natural, I can do something supernatural to it, and it can accomplish things that you could never think or imagine. I mean, my goodness, why is it that we believe that he could take our souls that were dead in trespasses and sins, bring them back to life through Jesus Christ, but then don't believe that he could take the physical and do something supernatural with it? We, we want to believe him enough that he could prevent us from going to hell but go to heaven because of what Jesus did on the cross, but don't believe that he could take the physical and the natural and do something supernatural with it today. 
I'm sorry, people that want to come along and tell you that, oh, all the miracles and stuff ceased simply because that God was using them to illustrate who Jesus was. I just don't buy into that because the Bible says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It also says he's not a respecter of persons. So he wouldn't, he wouldn't say, well, you know what? I got the ability to do miraculous things in people's lives back here, but I'm just not going to ever do any of that anymore in anybody's life right now. Here's the problem. Most Americans struggle in the church in believing a lot of that stuff, but go to some other countries where people are being raised from the dead. Go to some other countries where people are being healed because they don't have any other source to trust in or believe in except to say, if he is the God of the Bible that can do these things, then I believe he can do that today, and he is all that I have to turn to. Take stock of the natural things available in your life. Sometimes we are looking at what God has already put in our lives, and you are looking at your life with disdain when God is saying, that is the seed that I will take and multiply to grow into what I want to be in your life. Do not despise the days of small things. That's what the Word says. This concept is totally the idea of believing without seeing. Scripture is full of admonition to do this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 says, For we walk by faith, not by sight. Jesus was constantly working to instill in his followers the understanding, the understanding of walking in a natural world with a trust in his supernatural power and authority. That we're in this world, but not of this world. We are in this natural thing, but we serve a God who operates in the supernatural. Now, the problem is people get all wacky and get weird. Let's just be honest. People get all into some weird, crazy stuff, and they want to start having feathers falling out the ceiling and gold dust showing up and turning people's feelings that were whatever they used to be into gold and all this kind of junk. I don't, I don't see a whole lot of biblical precedent for all that stuff. You know, I mean, I don't, I, and if you, don't, if you don't think that's going, just go home and research some of it. There's a lot of that stuff that people are trying to... Look, here's what... God just wants to bring glory to Himself. And God's concerned about your issues. And God is concerned about things that are going on in your life. God ain't wanting you to shout and jump and run, but go outside after it's over, and you don't walk any differently in your life. He's not about what you can experience in the moment. He is about the moment changing you forever. He is about that whatever happens now impacts you where that when you walk outside these doors that you are able to be a witness of him in a way that impacts other people. My dad always used to say, it's not how high you jump, it's how you walk when you hit the ground. Faith is truly about believing when you cannot see. Hebrews 11 And one, now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. Hebrews 11 and 7 says, By faith Noah, after he was warned, listen to this, about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Catch this. The whole story about Noah was they had never seen rain. Remember this? We sometimes forget this. They had never seen rain. The idea that there was going to be rain was ridiculous. God would cause this mist to come up out of the earth at night and stuff, and it would, it would water the earth. They'd never seen rain like this. They'd never heard of the idea of a flood like this. And so this idea that there's going to be water come out of the sky, I mean, it was nuts. 
This guy, had he, he's up here saying, look, he was warned about something that was not yet seen. It never happened before. And he was motivated by godly fear. Catch that. It doesn't just say by fear, by godly fear. A respect and understanding that if God is telling me this, I need to grab hold of this. Maybe if we had a little more godly fear, we'd be motivated to do what God is telling us, but that's a whole other thing. He was warned about what was not seen. He was motivated by godly fear, so he built an ark, something else that nobody had ever seen. He could have looked around and said, oh my goodness, man, this ark is going to be huge and all this, and, and you're going to send animals, and they're going to come get in the ark. And I mean, look, it'd be ludicrous to believe this if you didn't believe that God would operate in the supernatural. If you didn't believe that God created everything and could speak to these things and cause them to do what He wanted them to do. If God can cause animals to figure out how to come two by two and get on the ark, I promise He can solve some problems that's going on in your life. If God can cause there to be lions and whatever else come and get in the stall over here, and then there's, there's, there's lambs and whatever that's over here, and they're not all eating each other and everything else... I'm glad he had a plan for, you know, everything that's created, though, because I sure wish that the frogs would have ate the mosquitoes. <laughs> I'm just telling you. But he had a plan. He had, he had a whole ecosystem that was going to work, so he designed it that way. So, so whatever ended up on that, on that ark was supposed to be. But Noah preaches something that's never been seen, builds something that's never been seen, and then lives through something that's never been seen. And he did it all by faith. Because none of it had ever been seen. None of it had ever been seen before. Jesus wanted Philip and these others to grasp the reality that there are power, there's power, there's resources, and there's solutions available that sometimes we cannot see in the moment. That's why it's faith. It's not faith if you can see it. I mean, if I sat here and said, oh, I got faith that Jason's sitting right here on the front row. Well, duh, I can see him. He's sitting right here. That's not faith. That's a, rea that's a reality of what I've... Faith is when we cannot see it and we're able to trust in what God is going to do. And we do so and we have that faith because we understand who and what God is. Understanding His character, understanding His nature, understanding what God does, what God is, that is what allows us to have faith. Jesus, the creator of all that we see, has the authority to bend and even break the rules that we think we understand about the natural world. That's why it's supernatural. It's beyond. It's above the natural. The guy who created it can decide how he wants to make it work. He can decide that he wants to step in and cause something to operate in a way and for a moment that is different than what the natural says it's supposed to be. He can heal, He can restore, He can create from nothing, He can change one thing into another, He can multiply, add, and subtract with the very physical world that we see around us. That's powerful. You didn't have to shout about that, but it's all right. Just when you, I mean, when you start that God can create, God can speak things out of nothing. You look in your life and say, well, I don't have much to work with. That's all right, because God can work with nothing. If you got something, I promise you God can work with something because God can work with nothing. You say, well, I don't feel like I'm anything. Great. That makes you available for God to work with you. 
I feel like I'm less than nothing. That's all right. He speaks nothing into existence and makes something. Understanding the power and the authority of the object of our faith, which is Jesus, allows us to see the reality of a given situation. Because now that's one of the things, that's one of the most bothersome things that ever, uh, I think, happens. When you start talking about God operating within the supernatural, people just, just start to lose their minds. It's going to be honest with you. People just start to lose their minds. They start telling people they need to, you just need to speak as if it's not and all this because the power of life is in the tongue and all this. Man, come on. That, that's one of the most abusive things I think that we say to people in the church world. You start telling people, oh, just speak like you've never been abused. That's a lie from the devil. That's something that'll keep hurt inside of you and won't allow for healing. Look, I, I, I will never tell you, oh, you just need to speak like nothing is. You need to speak like it already is or whatever. Here's what, I, here's what I tell you you need to speak. You need to speak who God is. I can't promise you that God is going to miraculously heal you in this life. So I'm not going to tell you you need to start speaking as if it's all healed. What I'm going to tell you is you need to speak that God is the healer. That God is the great physician. But God has a plan for your life. And, and the church world has, has led people down a path. And in fact, I, I, I was having a conversation with somebody online. I don't have as much time to do that uh, anymore as what I used to. But having a conversation with another pastor. And, and I'll be honest, it was one of those where I, I wanted to reach through Facebook and take a King James Bible or any other version. But King James, you know, just for some reason, it seems like the one that, that would make good for whacking people on the head. I wanted to take a King James Bible and whack him upside the head. Just being honest with you. Because this guy started speaking about some stuff, and he says, oh, oh, it's a, uh, yeah, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but, but I'm just going to go ahead and throw it out there. There's a whole thing going on right now. He's just one of about four that's happened recently with Jesse Duplantis about wanting to have a, a $54 million jet or something like that, some crazy amount of, amount of money. But, but one of this guy was, uh, this guy made this comment about, oh, God is the God of more than enough. And God doesn't want people to be, you know, riding in coach and all of this. And, and, and God wants to have this, you know, $54 million jet and all this stuff. And, and so I, and he, and he started putting it on the level of everyday Christians. And he was like, oh, see, God wants to just give and he wants to, he wants to provide more than your wildest dreams. And I sent and I said, then explain something to me. What about people living in a third world country where they're ra being raised in a slum they don't have an education. They don't have any of these things. But then they get saved and they're living for God and they're struggling through in that same community. They still don't have. They're still in a country that is just, just fraught with, with, uh, with a lot of corruption and everything else. And, but they're there doing ministry and doing the work of, of God. Sometimes way more ministry than what a lot of ministers are getting done. Let's just be honest. And I said, so what are you telling them? He goes, oh. Well, then they just need to be going and asking God because they're living below what God wants to do because God wants to take them out and give them a job and money and all this stuff. And I said, done, through with you. <laughs> Ain't no sense in continuing having this conversation because we got this Americanized Christianity that says that God wants everybody to have a house and a car and two and a half children because that's the way you know some of the averages or something like that or whatever. All this kind of stuff. And if you don't have it, then it must be because you don't have enough faith. It must be because you're not relying enough on God. Maybe it's because that God's biggest concern is not your comfort, but it is your conformance. 
It is that you conform to the likeness of His Son, Jesus Christ, who had nowhere to lay His head, who had no place, who went and was despised, but somehow it always got provided for. His desire is not your comfort. His desire is your conformance. So that when we become more like Christ, that we change the world, not because that everybody's going to come to Jesus and get a new car and a house. You may suffer through. Smith Wigglesworth, who was in, in, in England, was, a, was, a, man, was a, a man of God who strongly would pray for people and people be healed and all this stuff. But he would often be going and praying for people to be healed while he himself was suffering with an ailment that he would have to go back. I'm going to keep it high level because we've got some kids in here. But he would have to go back after praying for someone and then being miraculously healed and change some of his garments from bleeding while he would go and pray for him, then people would be miraculously healed. <coughs> Come off of a deathbed. But here he was dealing with that. Look, God just has a plan. God has the ability. I don't claim to know enough of God's mind to understand why God chooses in some situations that he doesn't just provide some miraculous healing. Why he doesn't just raise somebody from the dead. I don't know, but he's God and he's got a plan. And that's not being blind and that's not trying to be... It's just understanding that if I could identify and understand every single thing about God, he would not be God. I want us to fully grasp the implications of this idea that we are able to see the reality of a situation. Stop telling people in the church world, stop telling people in the faith community that they shouldn't hurt, that they shouldn't be experiencing something. The reality is we know that God wants to provide healing from things and that God wants to minister to people, but people need to sometimes go through what they're experiencing and allow God to become what is instead of shaming people and believing that you shouldn't have any response to something because you're not godly enough. We need to see the reality of a given situation, take stock of what's physically available in our life in that situation, and then exercise our faith that God can do the miraculous even though we cannot see how. I think that we, for too long, have thought that in order to operate in the supernatural, we need to pretend like the natural doesn't exist. The reality is the natural does. But the reality is that God is greater. The reality also is that, you all often heard me say that the Psalms tell us, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It does not say He picked me up when I got near it and took me over it. It says, though I go through it. I don't have to fear because He goes with me. I want us to understand this to the point that I want you to see connections to other scriptures that maybe you've never connected before because you've been looking at the situations versus the common lesson that we can learn from. We just look at individual situations. We don't see the connection. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. This is when Joseph's brothers have sent him off into, so they sold him off into slavery. His own brothers sold him off into slavery into Egypt. And now there's this famine and they have to come before him and he's all of a sudden number two in the whole country of Egypt. 
He's able to, to provide deliverance and all this stuff. And they had sold him because they were angry. They were angry at how their father, they felt, you know, treated him better than everybody else. So they sold him off into slavery. you got to hate somebody pretty bad to do that kind of mess to them. And they fooled their dad, remember? They fooled their dad telling him he'd been killed. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, his brothers have come and they're standing before him. Joseph is in a position where he could have exacted revenge on them. He could have said, aha, now I got you where I want you. You threw me in a pit. You waited on the slave traders to come by. You sold me and you lied to my dad. And I've been over here and I've been in jail and I've gone through all this stuff. Now I'm in a position where I can lay it to you guys. But he saw the natural. He understood the reality of it, but he understood that God was operating in a supernatural And here's what he says. You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. What I went through, you thought you were creating evil into me. But I know now that God allowed it to happen because he was providing good back to you who were doing evil. He was working in me and through me because of what you were doing to save many people because of what he has done in my life. Romans 8, chapter 28, connection over into the New Testament. Because I want to get you, get you to put these together in your brain. We know this one because we read this one often. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to His purpose. Catch this. God sees the reality of what is happening in your life. Philip looks at this situation. He says, we don't have enough money. There's not enough food here that we can take up for anybody. What are we going to do? God sees the natural and what's the reality there. Then you turn around and see that the problems and the obstacles that you face, as Joseph said, it might seem like this thing's evil or this thing's too big for us. to. It's bad. But God is meaning for something good to happen in the present because of the bad that has happened in the past. Does that mean that God wanted bad things to happen to you? That's not it. The effect of a fallen world and sin and choices and all these things, not choices necessarily that we made and brought on ourselves, but the fact that sin has come into the world has caused terrible things to exist, and God provides a way of escape. But Joseph understood, hey, these things led to a different end, and that's where we come to the New Testament and we get it laid out flat and clear for us that all things can work together for good of those who love God, those who are called according to His purpose. Does it mean that God's going to heal us? No, it just means He's going to work for your good. It may be that your good is that what you experience in a moment of suffering impacts someone that you've been praying for in your family. And they look and say, if they can have that kind of faith in this moment, then I maybe need to finally believe in what they've been telling me. How many of us, if we honestly could look and if we had children or if we had grandchildren or someone closely connected to us that, that, that we said, you know what, if I can go through a difficulty and it will lead them to Jesus Christ, how many of us would truly say, no, I would rather my children not see that example for me? Or would we say, I would go through it because I just want them to know Jesus? For us, the situation itself is usually our focus. It's in front of us. It's staring us in the the face. Something has to be done. (coughs) An answer is needed. Give you another one. The children of Israel once fleeing the Egyptian army. 
Remember, they, they get set free. Moses is with them. They're, they're heading out, and, and Pharaoh's like, wait just a minute. What has just happened here? We need to go get them people back. And so the Egyptian army is coming after them. They're, they're making their way, and they get to where there's the Red Sea in front of them. There's the Egyptian army behind them, and they're going, what are we going to do? People start complaining, oh, my goodness. We're going to come out here and die. God ends up speaking to him. Moses has a look and says, be still and see the salvation of God. Yes, you recognize the natural. You are in between the Red Sea and there's the army. You don't see God telling them, just speak as if the army's not there. <laughs> speak as if the Red Sea's not there. No, he says, in fact, see it, understand it, be still, and watch me work. They were in a hopeless situation. What's the common thread? What's the common lesson through some of these? It's big idea number three. And you're going to think this sounds a little bit like some of the others, but I'm going to tie them together for you here in a moment. Big idea number three. Keep your eyes focused on the answer in your life versus the problem in your life. Jesus wanted his disciples to understand that he was bigger than any problem or obstacle they faced. And he wants us to understand that our help operates outside the limitations of the physical that we see around us. In times of trouble, Jesus wants to turn us to turn our focus onto Him. Jesus called Peter to step out of a boat and walk across the water. The only time that Peter began to sink in the obstacle and allow the problem to overwhelm him was when he took his eyes off of Jesus and put it onto the obstacle. Peter was fully aware of that you're not supposed to be able to walk across water. He wasn't ignoring the natural. He wasn't pretending like it wasn't there. But he stayed focused on Jesus because if Jesus says, come to me, you can walk across any problem that comes into your path. If Jesus says, make your way to me, then I promise you, you can get through it. It may seem difficult. It may test your faith. But if we keep our eyes on Jesus, he will lead you through and over anything that stands in the way of us doing what he's called us to do. Why? Because Jesus is bigger. Jesus is greater. I want to walk you back through these three ideas. Big idea number one, keep your eyes focused on the source of miracles in your life rather than simply the results in your life. After God has done something powerful in your life, give honor and glory to the source of the miracle. Don't just celebrate the miracle. Celebrate the miracle giver. Amen. Don't just celebrate the miracle. Celebrate the miracle giver. Here's the, here's the truth. If you are constantly in your life celebrating the miracle giver, then whether God is doing something that you view as miraculous in your life at the moment or not, you will constantly be celebrating Him. Don't just wait. This is not. I, I've told people that it burdened them. I heard me uh, down in Goodwater. I preached at a church in Goodwater several years ago. And, and I, told, I said, people got Janet Jackson religion. What have you done for me lately? That's the way we look at God sometimes. And we're, we're going, well, I'll celebrate you based on what you've done for me lately. No, you just need to celebrate him because he is worthy. 
Celebrate the miracle giver because he is worthy. Because even if he does nothing ever again in your life, then to set you free from death, hell, the grave, from sin and all of that, then he has done the greatest miracle that you will ever see. Don't just celebrate the miracle. Celebrate the miracle giver. Idea number two, take stock of the natural things available in your life for it may be that God has already provided your answer. But always look to God for how he may choose to supernaturally use the natural in ways you haven't imagined. Don't disregard what God has already placed in your life. I, I, I've po- uh, shared a memory off of Facebook here. I don't think yesterday or Friday, one of the two. And it was, I, I can't remember. It might have been from about 10 years ago, or, or I'm sorry, about eight years ago, maybe 2010, something like that. But I'd put a thought on there. And it kind of was an accusation to myself when it comes to books, but it said, you know, our spiritual lives sometimes are like our personal libraries. We haven't used most of what's on the shelf, but we're always pursuing something new. What we really need to do is actually utilize what we already have before we try to hunt something new. See, we, we get where we are disregarding what God has already placed in our lives because we want something new and shiny. That's why divorce happens so much. That's why various things occur. That's why people make bad financial decisions because they can't be satisfied with what's already there. Spiritually, then, we do the same thing. God has put things in our lives that He wants to utilize, but we don't think that they're shiny enough. And so we're looking for something new when God is saying, I've already put the five loaves and the two little fishes, and I'm going to feed the 15,000. You just need to look to me instead of looking at the loaves and the fishes. And that final one was keep your eyes focused on the answer versus the problem. Now, what's the difference in these? Because the first one was keep your eyes focused on the source rather than the result. And then this one, though, the difference is keeping your eyes focused on the answer versus the problem. When God does something in our lives, we we tend to not give Him glory. But in this situation, in big idea number three, keeping your eyes focused on the answer in your life versus the problem, don't allow the problem to consume more energy and attention than you give to the problem solver. When God... These are kind of in a reverse order because it's the way they happen in, in this passage. This one really almost would be the first one in a sense because the problem while you're trying to deal with it, while you're trying to go through it, we sometimes get, we spend all of our energy and all of our attention and all of that on the problem instead of realizing that the bigger the problem is, the more it needs to drive us to the problem solver. It doesn't need to just overwhelm us because it, look how huge this problem is. It needs to make us go and say, man, this is going to take God because of how big this is. And I'm thankful that God is so much bigger and greater than this huge problem that's going on in my life. But I'm not going to put my energy and my attention into the problem as much as I'm going to put it into getting me before God and saying, God, help my unbelief. God, help me to rely on you. Help me to trust you. Help me to have faith in you because this problem is huge but I know that you are bigger this problem is strong and powerful but I know that you are greater I know that you have all power allow the force of the obstacle to push you more and more toward reliance on and submission to God keep your eyes focused on the source rather than the results take stock of the things that God has already put in your life and realize he may operate supernaturally with those things 
Keep your eyes focused on the answer rather than the problem itself. Let's pray.